Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host today, along with Ronaldo Brutico, for our program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Ronaldo, as you all know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a wealth advisor and estate planning consultant with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering two major topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we'll include questions and comments from you, our audience. We already, as we noted, have several questions in the queue that we've received by email, so if you'd like to place a question, please dial into us at 347-989-8946 and hit the pound key at the appropriate time. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today, we're going to be discussing the BP Gulf crisis and its impact on your finances, and secondarily, the truth about the economic recovery apart from all the politics, the noise you hear on TV, and how this all will affect you. And in our lightning round today, we're going to focus a little bit on the concept of commodities as an investment area. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Ronaldo and let him do his usual introduction. And again, Ronaldo, one of the purposes of monthly calls present our members with actionable and concrete ideas that also reflect the business, the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices to business and society. Again, can you expand upon this for our audience in light of today's topics and explain exactly where we need to go with this today? I think it's a perfect day to do it, Howard. Thank you. Um, we've got, we couldn't have a better example than the one we got last week. Uh, and, and for those of you listening, and I'll make this comment again later in the program, we're about to expand our Twitter uh, network. So we'll be sending out uh, tweets uh, more frequently, and we'll be doing it in conjunction with major economic and social issues to give our quick take on um, where we think things are going, because um, there has never been a time when it's been truer that this, we can no longer afford um, uh, Sunshine Patriots. What we need to do as individual citizens of the republic and of the planet is look at the situations we find ourselves in and be much more proactive because the leadership we had hoped would be there for us isn't providing enough to create the results that we need. Let me give you an example. Howard commented about the Academy's desire to see socially responsible business activities and how it affects us in, in, in society at large. Last week, the Congress... Uh, the Senate specifically, left Washington for its vacation and did not extend unemployment benefits. That is atrocious on all kinds of levels. Let's just list a few. It's atrocious because for those individuals who's been without work, because we just went through the greatest recession the world has ever known. We came within a hair's breadth of going through a depression. Many, many, many millions of people are going to remain unemployed because, and over a million three, I think, a million three hundred thousand people qualified for extended benefits, by the way. Those 1.3 million people, I don't believe they're unemployed because they're lazy. 
I don't believe they're unemployed because they don't want work. I believe they're unemployed because at 9.7 or 9.6% unemployment, they can't find work yet. And here's the sad thing. They might not be able to find that work for a long time to come because the, company, the country is basically restructuring itself. And what we need to do is assist those people during that restructuring. In addition to that, because it's the right thing to do, by the way, it also turns out it's the smartest thing we could do from a macroeconomic point of view. If we want to see the economy pick up steam faster, that 1.3 million, those 1.3 million people, every single penny they get in extended unemployment benefits goes immediately back into the economy to buy shoes and bread and butter and cars and everything else that keeps our economy growing. So to fail to give them the ability to sustain their own livelihood, we've actually just shot our foot off because those benefits would have come back fivefold, literally five times greater than what we paid out in the terms of rising economic activity. So for those, let me ask you a question. Like, why do you think it is that Congress failed to act on this? You know, I find it. I think I wish I was better at politics. I'm more comfortable in the world of economics and social policy. But it seems to me that the that that the administration is at fault here, Obama specifically. Um, I think that the idea that we would want 60 senators to do something as vital, as essential to the recovery we currently have that he would require 60 senators to do that, I think is a failing of the de- it's a terrible failing of the Democratic Party, and I think Obama needs to be much more aggressive in bringing them to task. I do not think he's being tough enough on his own party. Uh, with 58 votes in the Senate today, there is no reason why this could not have been done on reconciliation. Uh, two-thirds of the stuff that Bush did that was really pretty dramatic, he did under reconciliation, including tax cuts for the wealthy, etc., so I, I'm really concerned that Obama, and, and I wrote a piece, I hope people will go to uh, truthout.org slash WBA, and if anybody needs that citation, they can get it from the Academy. Go there and read the article I did at the request of Truthout on the occasion of January when he gave a State of the Union speech in which I said, Mr. President, a time for bold action, or a call for bold action. What we have needed, and I've been calling for this since January, it is now July, is bold action from the White House, and we haven't been getting it. We've been getting a lot of successes, and I want to give the president tremendous credit for that. He passed a, a health care reform bill that everybody since Harry Truman has failed to pass. He avoided the Depression, which was on its way. He seized control of the automobile industry, AIG, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and in fact has done a very good job with the people he's put in place to turn all those things around. Um, I'm quite, quite stunned by how well he's done there. And, you know, even though he got sandbagged by Goldman Sachs, I think he's allowing that to sort of fix itself as well. So where I am right now is I'm wondering why, and I don't know who speaks to the president, but I'm afraid it's too many people who are academically skillful but not practically skillful. That raises a point. I mean, during the campaign two years ago, what we saw was a dynamic individual who had a wonderful media campaign who inspired people um, in ways that we hadn't seen before. And all of that seems, from my perspective, to have vanished since he took office. Uh, What are you sensing about that? Two things. One, I think you're right that he hasn't been on the um, inspiration offensive, if you will which he was in the campaign, and I'm not sure why. Uh, clearly, and you and I were talking about this not long ago, um, he hasn't had many press conferences. He hasn't been seizing the bully pulpit very often. And that lack of um, seizing the, the initiative to take control of the debate and frame the question has hurt him so desperately that his, his poll ratings are falling, 
and in turn is compromising his ability to get work done. I think there's a second factor that I actually think is bigger than the first, though. And the second factor is I think he is a through-and-through academic. And what he needs is some really practical business people around him who can help him sort through the choices and take control of doing stuff, so to speak. I think he's a great guy about thinking about stuff. I think he's great at long-term strategy. But the public is now fed up. What they want is short-term consistent results, and they want to see somebody in charge. And their perception is, correctly or incorrectly, that this White House is not in charge. Now, I don't think that's true. I think they're doing a brilliant job in the agencies, except for interior and energy. But having said that, why is it taking this long, 80 days in this spill, for the president to exercise the level of control that he could? Now, having said that, I think it was brilliant, beyond belief, to get $20 billion out of BP. And that's, I know, one of our topics today, so let me just segue into that, Howard. People have no idea how valuable that $20 billion is. By the way, that's just the first 20 down payment. That is nowhere near the end. It's going to be 40, 60, 80, 100 billion or more. Do people know that Tony Hayworth, who's still for the moment the CEO of BP, just flew to uh, the United Arab Emirates to see the Crown Prince? And the rumor has it that he's arranging some special financing for BP. I wouldn't be surprised because it's obviously in the UAE's interest to keep BP very much afloat, pardon the pun. So I'm, I'm very discouraged with what the president has not done. I'm discouraged with the, with, with the power he has not taken. I'm discouraged with the actions that clearly he could have taken and hasn't for reasons I don't understand. But at this point in time, I, I really am more focused upon the fact that that $20 billion, which he did get and he got quick, which is now starting to be doled out quickly, um, that $20 billion is going to revolutionize the, re, uh, the reconstruction of the, econ- the economy of the Gulf Coast states, which needed it, by the way. It badly needed it coming out of the recession. Okay, so you well, got- let, me, let, me, let me hold you there for one moment and just remind our listeners that if they'd like to place a question, you can dial into us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the pound key. If you're already online, on the phone line, again, just hit the pound key and we will be available to take your questions. Ronaldo, again, let me just restate the topic for everyone, that we're talking about the BP Gulf crisis and its impact on your finances. Yeah, and you know, Howard, in every silver, in every, in every dark cloud, there is a silver lining, I believe, and in, even in a cloud of oil. And in this cloud of oil, the silver lining is the $20 billion. And as I say, that's the first 20 out of probably 40, 60, 80 or more. And the reason is, that $20 billion injected quickly by a an impartial person like Ken Feinberg, who, as many of the listeners will recall, is the man who has been administering successfully for a number of years the 9-11 uh, payments to victims. Uh, Ken's pro-victim. He's, he's pro-distributing. He's not pro-BP, and his job is to spend the money, not to keep it. And he'll do that as prudently and as fast as he can, and he'll get more from BP when he's done. That $20 billion with the conventional multiplier effect, which everybody knows about and I talk about on this program quite a bit, the multiplier effect in that area of the country is about 5.3, 5.4 to 1. So that $20 billion going injected directly into the pockets of people with fish boats and oystermen and, and restaurants and hotels down on the Gulf Coast will generate at least $100 million, a billion, $100 billion worth of economic activity. That's the silver lining in this cloud of oil. Now, There will be more money going in there. What's going to happen as that money goes in is the oystermen of yesterday is learning a new trade, and the trade is called environmental restoration technician. So a shrimp boat that's going to be grounded for 20 years, well, actually, oyster beds for at least 20 years, shrimp boats, we don't know yet how long they'll be grounded, but certainly more than a few years. 
those captains and those 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 men working on those shrimp boats are now being trained in environmental remediation, which it turns out is one of the growth sectors of the economy of the future. So these environmental engineers, so to speak, and technicians are going to have work for the next 20, 30 years or more in the Gulf, along the coast of Florida, and more importantly in other regions around the world as we start to address the environmental calamities that we've created with our imprudent use of the planet, not the least of which is driving a spear 18,350 feet into the heart of Mother Earth and watching gas and oil spew out of it for 80 days. Ronald, this brings us to our first question that came in by email. And this one, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit. Um, during the Exxon Valdez crisis in Alaska, you know, enormous numbers of fishermen were hired to uh, do the restoration. And this particular reader comments that having been up there at the time, what she witnessed was not so much cleansing of the environment, but making it look as if the oil was no longer there. In other words, it was a smokescreen, a, uh, a fake job where they just simply steamed the oil to go under the sand instead of over the sand. Um, do you think that's what's going on in the Gulf at all, that this is really uh, pretending to clean up, uh, making it look like it's gone, it, it, or is it actually happening? Yeah, two comments. First of all, uh, just an environmental comment. Uh, when you're talking about the waters up where the Exxon Valdez went aground, up off the coast of Canada in the San Juans, um, you're talking about very cold water. And that cold water is going to keep the congealed oil in place for much longer than the very warm waters of the Gulf. So I think um, I think the, the, the natural action of the environment, in, if all things were equal, you'd probably see a better result quicker in the Gulf. The problem is that all things are not even remotely equal. I mean, you're talking about less than 10 million gallons of oil that was spewed in, in, in Exxon Valdez. It was 7 million and something, wasn't it? Something of that nature, yeah. yeah. And, and here in the Gulf, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions of gallons. And you're also talking about an incredibly insane policy of using dispersants, which... I've been on record as being against from the second day of the spill because what dispersants do is they tend to try and hide it. They try to keep they break up the globules so that they're smaller, but that that causes them to go deeper into the water column. And as a result, the destruction for many, many years will be much worse than it would have been had there been no dispersants. Skimming boats are not as effective when you use dispersants. So there's a whole lot of reasons I'm really against dispersants apart from their toxicity. And I don't know why the federal government permits them to be used. And, and now we're injecting them at the wellhead. That said, your other part of your question was, will they intentionally try to cosmeticize the cleanup? The answer is yes, and we've already seen BP doing that. And left to its own devices, I'm clear that's what BP would do. However, I do believe that because this particular president is so smart, which clearly even whatever else he's got going on, no one would question his IQ, I think he's capable of seeing through that, and my hope is that he will use this, what he would call teachable moment, to require that the, cos that the cosmetic cleanup be abandoned in favor of the real cleanup. Okay. Now, we we'll see what call. happens when the oil's capped. We have a call coming in from Hawaii. It's an 808 number, and I'm going to open up that line if you're ready. And here we go. You're on the air. Hi, this is Madeline. I have a question. Hi, I'd like to know how the growth of the environmental re remediation sector in the Gulf will affect the broader U.S. economy and the finances of individuals in other parts of the country. Great. Thanks, Madeline, for bringing that up. 
um, basically it's going to be a partial lift for the whole economy. If, in fact, that $20 billion gets spent, which I think it will probably in the next three, four months, and you see another $20 billion or more coming in on top of it, uh, there's a good likelihood that it will tend to shore up a part of the country which would have the most difficulty otherwise recovering. So uh, I think it could add as much as one-tenth of one percent or two-tenths of a percent to our economic growth. Clearly, it will also help in keeping unemployment uh, down because the thousands of people, and I think it's up around 17,000 people who are now employed on the BP spill, and my guess is that's going to grow, by the way. And that doesn't even account for the people who are getting checks who aren't, quote, employed. So a motel owner who's getting a check for the 30 or 40 percent of the people who didn't show up this year is not unemployed, but he's also getting a check that he'll be able to spend. So I think it's going to cause a lift for sure in that area. And uh, my guess is if you take a look at what the total amount of net revenue that the shrimp and oyster industries together in one year generated in the Gulf Coast, I believe that this stimulus will exceed that within one month. I also want to point out to people that even there's there's this big brouhaha about the moratorium, but the moratorium, I think, affects, I'm going to say, 11, 12 rigs out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rigs. So we're not even talking about a negative effect there. They continue to pump oil. That oil continues to be received onshore in the Louisiana fineries, and that, those refineries continue to send that oil out through the country. So um, my guess is that BP is probably making almost as much money every quarter as it's spending every quarter in the Gulf, pretty close to it. And that's why they're very financeable. By the way, it's also why they'll continue to pour another $20 billion on top of the last $20 billion until this thing is over. And this thing isn't going to be over for a very, very long time. So it's a short-term stimulus to the economy, and long-term it will be even better because it will continue to restructure the Gulf Coast into more valuable and viable jobs for the future. Okay, we're back on track, Ronaldo. And again, going on with this topic, how is this going to impact individual finances, you think? And, and what kind of socially conscious opportunities or not exist for the average investor out there? Well, I, I think that's a great segue probably into the truth about the real economy and where the recovery is. So the question that Madeline just asked relates to whether or not, or how, actually, I should say, how the the stimulus, the, the money that's being provided by BP, in effect, is going to ask, act like an economic stimulus in the Gulf Coast. If you play off of that and you say, okay, the economy, and, and, and I'm really pleased, I want to point out to our listeners this month, last month we said that the market, stock market was not a particular jeopardy. There was as much pressure to put it up as down, and that likely it would be going pretty much sideways for a while. I'm delighted that um, that turned out to be true just as of a couple of days ago. Uh, the depression that the market, the pushing down of prices that occurred on the market over the last 30 days was absolutely artificial in my belief. And please, I want people to remember, those folks on Wall Street who are very much in control of the paper economy, they don't make money if things go sideways real well. They make a lot more money when things go down, if they can help push them down, and they make a lot more money when things go up, if they can help push it up. So their game is to try and figure out which way to push people, and then they do. And then by buying and selling and trading and constantly keeping it moving, they make money going up and down. I, I point that out because otherwise the yo-yo effect of the stock market would be something that people might otherwise pay too much attention to. Having said that, we also said in this call last month and have been saying for well over a year 
that this will not be a double-dip recession. I continue to be convinced that that is true, although I see one troublesome sign on the horizon that causes me to want to rethink that prediction. But for right now, I would stand by it. There will be no double-dip. The reason is that the economy is growing right now at about 25 2.7% per annum. So that's in, in a zero, virtually zero inflation world. That's, a, that's real growth of over 2%. Now, we said a couple of years ago, watch for a slow, shallow, L-shaped, very, very gentle uptick that will continue for a period of years. That uptick is happening, and it's happening across the overall economy. So the truth about the economy is, despite what you see on the people who like to uh, have exciting stories on the news so you'll turn on their channel instead of somebody else's, the economy continues to pick up steam. Uh, you see this, by the way, in the significant decrease in the un new unemployment requests this month that just came out. Um, is, the, uh, is, unemployment ri is employment rising as fast as we'd like? Absolutely not, and I think the administration is to blame for that. I think clearly the administration has got to fight harder to use reconciliation to get the extension of job benefits referred to earlier. I don't think they should let this thing go without putting more stimulus in it. We need it, uh, and that's, we've said that all along. I mean, if you look at what Paul Krugman wrote a but, year but ago. Let me stop you again for a moment before that. For those of our listeners who are not that familiar with politics, can you clarify what you mean by reconciliation, that part of the process? Oh, sure. Thanks, Howard. Reconciliation. So there's a, there's a technique which was used extensively in the last eight years um, where you, you only need 51% of the votes in the Senate. And that's important because no, not, no one, our founding, that's called reconciliation, uh, no founding father ever believed that the Senate would have the power to block everything if it didn't have 60 votes. That's not, that doesn't exist in the Constitution. That was not even, in fact, the, the, the filibuster itself was an add-on that came later as a matter of Senate rules. It's not even the law of the land. So this whole filibuster thing is getting a little crazy. Um, why should you give the power to 40 senators to block the general will of the entire population in the best interest of the country, and particularly when those 40 senators clearly are voting in a block to do anything they can to hobble, humble, and defeat the president. I believe it's the, one of the most I mean, craven examples of politics used against the people's interests that the Republican Party today, if you can figure out who in the heck is running it, which is itself is a good question, but they seem to be monolithic in their willingness to stop anything progressive from happening. They, I believe they would rather see the, the, the economics of Hoover to Hoover and see the recession return so they could blame it on the Democrats, then they, then they would see the recession ended. And, and, and for those people who are worried about the fiscal deficits, by the way, right now is the worst time in the world to be looking at those deficits. I started to refer to Paul Krugman, the famous Nobel economist recently. Um, you know, more than a year and a half ago, he was saying, we don't have enough stimulus in the $750 billion. We need to have a second, second wave of stimulus. And he was right. We've endorsed that at the Academy for over a year ourselves. We think that they need another at least $500 billion, $750 billion in stimulus. Now, that kind of money is not a problem to the long-term deficit of the, of the United States if, in fact, it can cause the economy to grow at 35 3.7%, 4% a year instead of 2% a year. Because the growth in economic activity generates more tax revenues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and before long you start paying it down. And we had a whole call on this at one point about where we talked about the relative debt coming out of World War II versus the debt today. 
Now, I want to make one last point, and then I'd love to throw it back to you and ask you a question, Howard. And my last point is this. It seems to me that the deficit issues, which are, I mean, it's really Hoover economics. If, if, if we were to revolutionize, I mean, really radically use this opportunity to change off of fossil fuel, do people realize how rich that would make us? See, I don't think people realize they're just starting to understand that the oil industry is the most heavily subsidized industry in the world, the American oil industry. I don't think people realize until, if they're even realized now, over 80% of every federal subsidy dollar goes to the oil and gas industry, which is by far the most monolithic and the most powerful and the most profitable in the world. How does this happen? Only when politics becomes perverse. When you unwind that, you get back 80 cents on the eight, over 80 cents of every dollar you're doing for subsidies. I'm upset with agricultural subsidies, but I've got to tell you, compared to what the oil industry gets, that's piker stuff. So for me, I think what we need to do, and here's the question I want to ask you. What we need to do, Howard, I think is we need to get serious about looking at the deficit, not as a temporary issue, but as a structural change. And I think I see that coming. I'm particularly pleased that the Congressman Ron Paul has joined with Barney Frank, so the far right and the far left, if you will, in agreeing that we need to move 10 to 15% of the U.S. Um, military budget, and that alone would be the way to not only address the federal deficit, it would give us the ability to improve Social Security, a better health care plan than we've got now. No one has to wait to 70 to retire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We could restore infrastructure building again. All that happens. My question to you, Howard, is can you think of any reason, as a smart guy who invests other people's money, why we couldn't make a ton of money investing in this new economy? Well, there are good answers for that, as well as it's a good question. And what I sense is, in general is that I do not see you know, the old Teddy Roosevelt bully pulpit being used. Um, I see you know, tax incentives for solar being reduced. Um, I do not see anybody out there touting and creating the intellectual and publicity-based environment that supports this. And to my mind, that has to come from leadership. Um, give you an example, and, and the fact we all know, that 40% of all energy generated by power companies and central processing facilities is used simply to move energy through the power lines. If you were to advocate for, let's say, localized or regionalized solar and shift the economic model from one of centralized control of power to going backwards 200 years where everybody was responsible for chopping their own wood or buying their own coal, to heat their homes, uh, to one where every home in America, and they prove this in, in northern Germany, where they can use solar in northern climates very effectively, it's not just California and the West, um, if you start localizing solar, you have an immediate 40% savings in energy. That's why right. Is, and, 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 why and, and by the way, that, and, and, and you know what, Howard, Howard there's, and there's one other, you're right, and there's one other thing you've got to add to that. If you create power locally, like in your garage and you use it locally, like in your house, which they do in Japan, by the way, you, you actually can go back to using direct current instead of alternating current, and direct current is hundreds of times more efficient than alternating current. The reason we went to alternating, or AC, alternating current in America, is because we wanted to move power a long distance over lines. But if you create the power closer to where people use the power, you not only save the 40% that you're talking about, which is transmission line loss, you also save the use. Of, your computer is a DC appliance. 
Your television can be a DC appliance. Your refrigerator, your freezer can all be DC appliances. And by the way, if you own an RV or a boat, they are DC appliances already. And they're dramatically more efficient. So it, not only do you save on the 40% line loss, you'll pick up another 20, 30, 40%, literally 20, 30%, by switching over to DC, um, uh, DC equipment, by DC appliances. So my point to your, to your comment would be, and I'd like you to continue on, is why don't we politically, I don't know, but Howard, don't you think that there are all these industries, these sunrise industries that people could make a lot of money investing in if the president and the administration got serious about switching off of fossil fuel? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, I, even in my own home, we're literally in discussion now with uh, different solar companies about putting a system onto our house. That's potentially anywhere from a twenty-five dollars to a $35,000 uh, ticket, which about a third of that would come back in some form of either tax write-off or existing subsidies. But those subsidies are only the starting point for stimulating that kind of economy. It's a very localized scenario. If you had a more broad-based policy and a publicity campaign to make people aware of this, and I think that's where I see the Democratic Party and the president truly falling down is they're still letting the oil industry, they're still letting uh, the, the power powers that be control the story and control what's out there in the media. And they're not countering this by reframing the question. Um, I mean, literally your book, you know, Getting Off um, Spoil, Oil, you know, was a brilliant title in its own way because it stated the obvious. How do we get off foreign dependence? Well, how do we get off fossil fuel when the industry that controls fossil fuel is the single most monolithic power in this country? Yeah, by the way, I, I, if I were to write that book today, and, and I'm delighted that not one single footnote has turned out to be false, nor has the, anything been challenged in the content of the book itself. So for people who are interested in the energy issue, please get a copy from the Academy. It's still very much up to date. It's, it's, it's pricelessly up to date. It's called Freedom from Mideast Oil. 100% of all the money that we raise from that goes into the Academy. There are no author royalties paid. But, uh, you know, if I were to write that book today, uh, I'd call it Freedom from Fossil Fuel. Because the truth is it's much bigger than Mideast oil. It's time to break the, 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 the addiction, literally, to fossil fuel. We're like a bunch of heroin addicts right now. And we could do it so easily, and it would make us so rich. That's what people have to hear. Uh, the, the Republicans are trying to frame the issue as gee, if you take care of the unemployed, there'll be less money for you, when the exact opposite is true. This is, a pl this is a situation where the rising economy takes care of all boats and raises them all together. It turns out doing the right thing by extending unemployment benefits actually is better for the economy. The right thing to do by grabbing that $20 billion from BP and spending it quickly in the Gulf is the right thing to do for the general economy. The, 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 by controlling the future into a fossil fuel-free future, is the right thing to do for the economy and will make us richer than we can possibly believe and the deficits won't even be a blip on our horizon if we continue down the path however where we mindlessly are led like sheep by the oil companies by the utility companies by the industries that have huge um, investments in capital assets and the ability to control resources so our politicians vote where they want them to if we continue to be captured as Lincoln said, and it's never been truer than today, this nation cannot long survive half slave and half free. I would say that more than half the people are enslaved to a way of thinking that is destroying the nation and could destroy the planet. 
let me give you just one last example. All this brouhaha, this fear about we'll end up like Greece, that is preposterously stupid. It's the most insane thing I ever heard. I mean, Greece is a country that doesn't even collect its taxes 55% of the time. I mean, I could list 18 different things that make Greece so unique. Even Spain is not going to have the problem Greece had. And I said that last month on this call, and guess what? Spain went to the bond market two weeks ago between these calls, and Spain pulled it off at a better rate than anybody predicted except us. Why? Because Greece's situation is totally unique to Greece, and as badly wrecked as Spain was, Spain doesn't even have those issues, so Spain's coming back slowly but surely. Portugal's coming back slowly but surely. The Irish and are I, coming and back. And I don't know the, number, the exact numbers of compensation, but when you're unemployed in Spain, it's a very different situation than being unemployed in the United States. You don't oh, lose your no health care. No uh, you don't lose your pensions. Uh, you get sufficient unemployment benefits that you're still a functional part of the economy. You're basically not starving yourself uh, or your family. You lose your holiday. Places. That's about it. You don't lose right. You don't lose your home. You might lose a vacation. You might you not lose your holiday, not your home. Right, which is a very big difference Huge than what's going on in this country. Um, and, and, and by the way, I want to tie that to the euro because people were hammering the euro. Remember what I said last? I said on this call a month ago. I'm going to start buying my euros for my September trip because the euros never get any, get any lower. Do you notice it bottomed out? For about a week and a half after I said that, the euro kept dropping a penny or so. But now the euro's coming back, if you notice. It went up again yesterday. Why? Still floating in the mid-120s, yeah. Yeah, it's a 122.23. And, and this is the bottom of the euro. So if you want to make some money, go buy a euro index, and you'll be happy you did. Why? Because look at what Germany's doing. Germany is barreling along. A weaker euro just made Germany that strong, much stronger for its exports. Now, the Chinese did revalue the renminbi. That's doing, going to do two things. Number one, it's going to make it easier to sell goods into China. Number two, it's, it's, it's signaling an enormous change of position by the Chinese Communist Party. They're saying, we're going to let our people get richer. We're going to let a middle class develop more. That's enormous. We're allow internal consumption. These are enormous things to say when you're sitting on the largest population group in the, in the planet. Um, I, I'm watching with great interest how India deals with, with its inflation. But it appears to me that the, the significant inflation that India is um, under, undergoing is acceptable given the rate of growth India continues to experience. Now, is it desirable? No. But it's clearly not going south, and it's certainly not going towards deflation. So the, 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 all these, this wolf crying about the deficit, oh, we're going to be like Greece, this is crazy. This, this, is, this is people saying things that either do not know what they're saying, which is probably most of the count time, or intentionally are misleading the public. And when the public, again, is willing to be misled, when it's not willing to do its homework, when it's not willing to come on phone calls like this to listen to what's really going on, they are enslaved by the patois, the, by, the, by, the, by the chattering of the, to quote Spiro Agnew, the, negative nabob, the, the nattering nabobs of negativism. And those nattering nabobs are working us for a reason as a people. It's putting money in their pocket, and they're, and they're hoping we stay asleep at the switch. Well, Ronald, again, that brings us to a big global question here. And then after this, we'll, we'll jump back to our uh, lightning round. Um, but the question is, we have a Democratic Party that at, for the past four years, six years actually, has been pretty much in control of Congress. We have the president. In control. control. That's a strange word, Powered. I don't well, agree with that. They, on paper. Well, let's put on paper. They are in paper. control. 
And yet the message that seems to be coming out in the media, in the press, on with the talking heads, consistently seems to be the opposition point of view. And the opposition seems to be dominating the, that point of view. And the, the Democrats seem to be, as I said, losing control and running scared from their own positions, their own policy, and trying to bend themselves so far to the middle that they forget what uh, progressive ideas are. Why is that? Why are they running scared? And why aren't they and why isn't Obama getting these messages out to the public? What's gone wrong? Well, I mean, that's, again, I I think that's probably somebody with more political expertise than me has to answer, but my sense watching it as an economist and as a social policy theorist is that the Democratic Party um, really does not have a sense of why it's in office. It's been trying to be all things to all people. I think that they, uh, they, 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 they've lost the perception, the reality check, that the American public is not going to blame them at the polls in November for being Democrats. They're going to blame them at the polls, appropriately so, if the Congress doesn't do something. Now, to the, benefit, to the, to the credit of the House, the House of Representatives has actually been doing a pretty decent job of serving up the right policies. And the leadership there, I think, has been pretty good. I think the Senate, on the other hand, has been remarkably, um, woefully incapable of grasping what it needed to do and not having the guts to do it. Um, an example I would use of something I thought was complete perfidy was when um, they ran back in after conference committee on the finance reform bill ended. The final bill was reported out. The House adopted it. They ran back into conference in the dead of night to remove the $19 billion fund that the banks were supposed to pay so this they could pay for the damage they did and for the future. And that was that $19 billion basically tax on the banks that did this to this, the public was removed in the dead of night in the hopes of obtaining the vote of Scott Brown, uh, the new Republican senator from Massachusetts. I'm, I'm outraged by that. My, my attitude is, you Democratic senators don't deserve my support, frankly. Um, and, and, and I'm not a Republican, uh, but I, they don't deserve my – and I'm not a Democrat. The Democrats don't reserve my support at this time because they are not acting with the passion of a patriot who's willing to do the right thing and count the cost later. They're trying to count noses, and they're getting hoodwinked doing it. I don't think when you've got 58 sitting senators, the United States senators, who claim to be Democrats, and 50, 57, I guess, if you take Lieberman. No, 58 if you, include Lieberman, if you don't include Lieberman, uh, but you do include Bernie Sanders. 58 senators in the United States Senate is seven more than you need to pass all the legislation that I want to see passed, which is increase the stimulus immediately by at least $500 billion. Number two, immediately extend unemployment benefits for that 1.3 million of long-term unemployed. And, and then immediately take charge of financial reform and make it meaningful. Fortunately, Howard, the Europeans are doing a better job on financial reform than we are, and our companies and their companies are going to be following their rules, which thankfully are more rational than ours right now particularly in the rare derivatives. Well, good. At this moment, Renal, let's try to move on to our lightning round, but I want to structure this a little bit differently today. First, the reminder, if anybody wants to place a call who might be on the computer line, uh, dial into us at 347-989-8946 and hit the pound key. 
Uh, and again, in today's lightning round, we're going to focus on commodities, but I'd like to get to that last. Um, again, lightning round is designed to be a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes such as bonds, the dollar, energy, real estate. And again, today's emphasis is going to be on commodities. But as I said, let's try to get to that last, and let's do a little quick hits first on fixed income, the dollar, treasuries, and where you see short-term rates being. Next 30 days, not much change. Uh, I think you're going to see that the bond market will see that it's going to have a tiny little uptick in the cost of money, U.S. traders I'm referring to. You'll see that the dollar will have a little bit of downward pressure on it, not dramatic at this point, but building. You'll see that the, um, therefore the price of bonds will hold state relatively stable. Um, I would expect the, um, the Brazilian real to continue to appreciate against the dollar um, by at least uh, a penny or two. I'd ex- certainly, I could see a penny in the next 30 days. And I would say likely the same thing in uh, the world of the, the euro. I also think that the people are becoming impressed that the British are really serious. In fact, I think maybe overly serious. They may be approaching the, the air economy a little too draconian. But the British pound will definitely continue to firm as it's already started this last week to do. For someone looking at like short-term investments, um, you know, bond rates, pretty short-term, took a big hit at when the market went down, uh, again, because people were buying up short-term trades and so forth. Um, is there a place of, of safety that you see for short-term rates for people? Or is it just bite the dust and hold your nose? I don't know. Howard, what do you think? Because I, 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 I think that we're in a state of flux this month. This First of all, it's July. The well hasn't been capped, and the press is going to keep putting that on the front page every day. Uh, that's going to continue to remind the public of the failings of the current uh, the current approach to how to deal with the Gulf crisis. You're going to see more negative television until that thing is capped. Um, the Republicans and the, and the Democrats in the Senate went home on vacation. Uh, when do they reconvene? Do you know, Howard? It's, it's more I than a month from now. It's, it, they're not going to be here till August, at least. I September. Maybe after Labor Day, I think. No, I think there is there is work that does get done over the summer, but not completely. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know when they're due back officially. Are they yeah. sitting in session in August? I hope so. In any event, if they are, uh, and we get the, the we get the uh, either the stimulus bill, which apparently is dead at the moment, or we get financial reform, which I think could happen, or we get an extension of the unemployment benefits, long-term unemployment. If if any one of those three happens, I think it will have implications. But I'm not expecting any of those three in the next four weeks. So I would say we're in this kind of hiatus period. What I, what I sense is that it's the climate of fear that always triggers investors to hedge positions by moving more towards cash. We saw that this last quarter, which for the first time in seven quarters, the market actually took a dip in the last few weeks. And we had talked about this before, that there's this sort of mechanical repositioning that goes on at the end of every quarter where investment advisors are trying to outdo their competitors in terms of their ranking and their status, because that's how they get paid by their relative performance. And this quarter, we saw them all moving to cash in fear. Not large amounts of cash, but enough that it changed the market and drove it down. Now, again, we see it bounce back up this week a little bit. um, But overall, we're still in this general mood of of being afraid to take a long-term step anywhere. And that is is more of a publicity event in a sense, it's something that has to be created as an atmosphere of things are going positive. 
where is that coming from from the administration that we actually are on this road um, to recovery? They're not selling what they've already accomplished. No, I, 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 there's no question that they haven't sold what they've accomplished because they've accomplished, I mean, so much. I mean, even as discouraged as I am about the way Obama's handling a lot of things, I mean, he's really achieved more forward momentum in his first year and a half than Roosevelt did in his first year and a half, and Roosevelt didn't have a couple of ugly wars on his hands. I think you're going to see again. Go back to this but, but Barney Frank. Go back to this Paul, this Ron Paul, Barney Frank thing. I mean, if we start a serious conversation in this country about reducing the military budget, Howard, that would unleash unbelievable wealth generation. I mean, unbelievable wealth generation would get unleashed. So, if you got a conversation happening from the Tea Party right and from Barney Frank on the left about re- reducing that budget. I think it's entirely conceivable that with leadership it could be. Now, you're asking the fundamental question which relates to all these issues, which is where's the leadership? And I I think it hasn't been there. I don't know why. I don't know what exactly he's trading at the moment. But I'm clearly not pleased with some of the trades he's making, and I'm wondering why, and I just don't know. Okay. Well, let's move on a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about energy, not as commodity, but just energy in general, and then real estate. Um, We'll hit oil first. Price of oil is not going to go up or down significantly again this month. We said that last month we were right. It's going to be going sideways again. The amount of energy being lost in the Gulf is insignificant, um, even with the, with the 11 wells decommissioned while, you know, while the moratorium's on, <laughs> insignificant. So basically you're talking about um, there should be no – there's no fundamental reason for the price of oil to rise, therefore the price of energy doesn't rise in the next 30 days between and this call and the next one. And real estate? Um, real estate, real estate. As I said last, get their all-time low uh, this uh, past yeah. week. Yeah, real estate. As I said last month, I think uh, started bottoming out about a month or so ago. I continue to hold to that opinion. If, if if you've got cash and you need a place to live, not an not a tel, not an ATM, but you want a place to live, this is probably the best time in history to buy something because you'll get prices at close to the low in the housing market still, and you get the, the lowest mortgage market rates. In, in history. So when you combine those two together, it means your monthly payment over the next 30 years, and I recommend fixed only to people, fixed, fixed 30-year mortgages, um, over the next 30 years, you're going to be safe. You're going to have gotten a heck of a buy. So I'd say residential is starting to bottom out in most markets. In, I, I, Florida, by the way, is an exception. Florida real estate will continue to go down indefinitely into the future. I see no recovery for Florida ever, frankly, but um, for a bunch of reasons. But in the rest of the country now, you're seeing it bottom out and start to come up the other side. Uh, I think you're going to see a different phenomenon, however, in commercial real estate. We've started to see um, uh, you know, an uptick in the problems in commercial real estate. hasn't been as severe as people thought it might have been. Uh, I think it's still building. I don't think we're at the bottom of the commercial real estate challenges, although I think we're, we could be getting close to it depending on what the REITs do. Uh, last but not least, I think that uh, you're seeing some of the wealth categories for example, the repossession of jet aircraft and private aircraft is at an all-time high. Um, it's like 50% higher today than it was two years ago. So you're talking about um, th- that bubble now also is passing through the economy. So I think that there are certain asset classes which will continue to feel downward pressure, commercial real estate being one of them, not at the bottom yet. Some that are going sideways at the bottom and starting to come up in many places, that's residential real estate and other asset classes like the bubbles for the wealthy yachts and airplanes, but particularly airplanes, um, I think are, you're going to see a continuing um, kind of bubble pass through for the next few months, and that will come out the other side. So I'm looking for 
continued growth in the economy in, in most uh, asset classes, and I think you want to switch to commodities, which can give us an opportunity to comment on things like you know, more basic things, copper, et cetera. Right, yeah, and let's do that. Again, with a reminder to our listeners, if you want to ask a question and you're already on the phone line, just hit the pound key, and if you're not, you can dial in at 347-989-8946. So, Rinaldo, again, basically for those of our listeners who may not be that familiar with the terminology, um, what is a commodity? What constitutes that asset? Yeah, and it, a commodity is... Is, is is like one of the raw building blocks of society, if you will. Now, it doesn't have to be, but when you hear that term used popularly, and remember, uh, reporters in the newspapers are not that sophisticated, so they tend to use these terms in a particular way, which may not be precisely accurate, but then becomes the way people come to think of it. So the way you will hear the word commodity used in the newspapers and on television is a sort of a basic building block of stuff for the economy. So an example would be copper. Why? Because we use copper in our wires, and, and, and the more that the society builds stuff, the more copper wires it still needs, uh, even though we've moved over to fiber optic and some other things and, and as a way to replace copper in many applications. We still use copper in so many applications that as the economy grows, particularly in the developing world, we need more and more copper. So copper would be a commodity, a basic commodity. Uh, steel is called a commodity, but there's another a commodity below that, which is called uh, uh, iron ore, sometimes called pig iron. Uh, and, and these are also commodities that get traded or bought and sold as they become part of finished goods for some other person. So let's take copper. It gets dug out of the ground. That's one guy that owns the mine. It gets refined into a metal. That's another guy makes a profit. That metal is incorporated in a uh, modern um, a modern product like a telephone wire, like I'm talking to you on. And that telephone wire then gets built into the price of the telephone, and that's how the guy who supplies the wire gets paid. So that's a commodity as it goes through various stages from raw mineral in the ground, it's a commodity, um, um, refined substance, the well, copper itself is a metal, uh, the extrusion and, and, and process of making it into wire, then incorporating the wire into a consumer electronic device. The same thing is true of pork bellies. Unfortunately, it's a bad term, but it's, it's descriptive because that's how we then create bacon and pork chops and stuff like that. Pork bellies are a commodity. I could go on and on. Basically, all the basic building blocks of stuff are commodities at one point or another in their, in their evolution towards products that we either consume or use. Uh, Howard, that's how I see commodities. How do you see them? Uh, I would say basically that's it. Now, the other question I would ask is, again, for our listeners who are not that familiar, where does one, other than the grocery store or hardware store, where does one buy a commodity? Where oh, do you buy? That's iron? a great question. And by the way, i got to warn people, don't go in person where I'm going to tell you. <laughs> it's crazy. There's a thing called the Chicago Board of Exchange, CBOE, which is considered the leading commodities uh, pit. And, and that's the word they use, pit in the world. Uh, and if you ever want to see chaos r barely structured <laughs> in the financial system, you go and watch from a distance the CBOE. You know what I'm talking about, Howard? Oh, I, absolutely. I tell a quick story. When I was uh, training as a broker in New York many years ago, uh, the building next to the World Trade Center was one of the commodity trading centers. And a friend got us into the pits to see what was going on. And my reaction and someone just reminded me of this because I ran into the fellow who I went in there with recently, that 
it struck me as the most bizarre human experience I had ever witnessed in the course of my lifetime that includes traveling all over the world. Um, what you would find is literally a man's, or sometimes a woman's, sitting at the center of a pit with a plastic shield, the kind you use when you're welding, um, receiving chits, little paper or tickets, from uh, traders who were picked for two reasons. One, they were tall. Two, they had a voice that if you sat in the upper deck of Yankee Stadium and yelled something to the home plate umpire about their sister, the umpire would hear it. Um, it was extraordinarily loud, extraordinarily noisy, the noise levels that the military would use to disorient terrorists. Um, <laughs> That's the truth. I mean, if almost, you want terrorists to talk, put them in the pit at the CBOE. <laughs> it, 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 it is just an unbelievable, noisy, chaotic feeling environment, yet these people obviously know what they're doing. They all wear different colors, uniforms representing the companies they're trading with, and they're throwing these chits at the person in the middle of the pit who's declaring the bids, and they're wearing that safety goggle um, to protect their eyes. From Absolutely. Because the paper it, flies, it, it, it can it, hurt it's you. It's almost primordial experience. And, and, and let yet, me just talk about those chits. Yeah. Good. Finish your sentence. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Good. That's almost primordial. Do you want to finish? Well, just the the whole experience is so strange and so bizarre. And then yeah. when the bell rings to end that session yeah. in that area, it goes dead silent. It's Your head's still quiet. ringing from the noise and the vibrations. And then a matter of minutes later, another bell will ring in another section of the exchange. And another commodity could be wheat or corn or something else, soybeans, would start trading in another area. And the process begins all over again. Now, um, it's... So let's go back to the chits, because I want people to know what chits are. Okay, so whether it's wheat, soybeans, oil by the barrel, and there's different grades of oil. There's, there's um, Saudi Light, uh, which is a sweet, wet, it's actually West Texas sweet uh, crude. So there's different designations of commodities, okay? There's winter wheat, there's, there's red wheat, there's all kinds of different subsets, because as I said, it's the basic building blocks of society, of the material stuff we use. So no matter which commodity we're talking about, copper, oil, wheat, red wheat, um, Texas intermediate crude, whatever we're talking about, somebody has it, somebody wants to buy it, and they don't necessarily want to buy it for the purpose of using it. They might, most of the time, they want to buy it for the purposes of reselling it. Okay, how do you buy it? Well, if you've got a barrel of Texas oil, and you go to the CBOE, as an example, and there are other places in the world where this can be done, you say, I got, a bill, I got a barrel for sale, who wants to buy it, in so many words, which is why you want big guys who can yell loud, because people start yelling prices at you. I'll buy it for $72. I'll buy it for $72.01. Oh, and then the guy says, I'll buy it for $72.02. At some point, and these chits are flying at you, which are paper commitments, basically, coming at you like snowflakes in a, in a, uh, like, uh, in a blizzard. Like huh? Snowballs filled with ice. <laughs> that's, that's, it's, it's really are. It, it, it seemed that violent and experience. And they, and they, and they have to, they, they hurl them because they wanted to get to you before the other piece of paper. So this is all coming at you. And a trade is consummated, meaning I accept, I put out a bid, I'll take $72.01 for this. Paper starts hitting me. All those pieces of paper have, have the contract, so to speak. They've, they've accepted my bid. And the guy who's – the next barrel I sell, I might go for a higher price because all of a sudden I see there's lots of paper coming in at $72. Maybe I get $73. So this is what goes on in the what's called the exchange for commodities, the trading of commodities. Now, why would someone buy that barrel of oil and not want to use it? Well, what happens with commodities is you usually buy them 
pretty far in advance. So the oil, the oil is not being delivered to the Chicago Board of Exchange. The oil is still in somebody's tank, or maybe it's still in the ground, frankly. It's a promise to deliver that oil at some point in the future, and the date of that delivery is also part of the, of the trade. So what I'm really buying is the right to buy that oil at some future date. Well, if I'm smart and I figure out, and this is what commodities trading is, so if you hear this expression, this is what it means, a commodities trader is somebody who believes they can figure out whether the price of that commodity is going to go up or down in the future. If I think the price of oil is going to go up, I'll buy it for $72, hold on to it, and turn around and trade it again later for 73 or 74 making a profit. Now, there are a lot of questions people ask, and I'm not going to deal with them today, but if you want ask us this question on the next call, we'll do it. People ask questions like, well, gee, what value does that have? It sounds like a bunch of grown people just playing poker with each other. And to a certain extent, that is true. So if you're interested in a subsequent call, let us know. We'll tell you what the socially acceptable purpose for why we encourage or permit, I should say encourage probably, the trading of commodities. Why do we encourage people to make a paper profit buying and selling stuff that's basic to our economy, why do we do that? What's the purpose of that, that these people are getting rich buying and selling, and of course, every time they buy and sell, the price gets added, one way or the other, indirectly, to what we're doing in the economy. So if people want to know why we encourage, what's the socially beneficial reason, theoretically, for commodity trading, ask us that question, we'll answer it. For today, let's just stop with having identified that that's what goes on. That's called commodities trading, and there are many ways, I'll just list a few, that you can do that. Number one, you can actually buy a contract for the delivery of you know, 100 barrels of oil and be ready because at the point of the date of that contract, you'll be required to pay for them, and they'll be delivered to your shop. Or you could be basically a person who aggregates those promises so that you can supply your utility customers who are needing to buy millions of gallons of oil to keep their, uh, to keep their oil-fired uh, utilities going, or coal the same way. So these, these exchanges provide an opportunity. You as an individual can buy an, an absolute commodity. You can buy a barrel of oil if you want for delivery. Not particularly prudent. You can buy the right to that oil and then sell it before it actually arrives to somebody who really wants it. Or you can buy an indexed fund that has a number of commodities in it, and what it does is it tracks and it says, if the economy is going to go up, if you believe the, if you believe, for example, if you believe the academy's uh, prognosis, which we've been giving people for the last year and a half, or whenever we started saying the economy is going to go back up, starting when it did, you would have said, gee, rising economic activity usually means certain base commodities like copper will go up in value, and you can buy an index that has copper in it but it might also have other things in it that we use, probably steel and that kind of an index. So there are index funds that you can invest in, like a stock mutual fund, that the underlying asset is the right to own the commodities, even though you never take delivery of the commodities. So there are many ways you can invest in it. I just want to say one last thing, and then I'll turn it back to you, Howard. I don't believe commodity investing is for the layperson. I can't, there can't be many people on this call who it would be suitable for. Well, I would urge you to stay away from it in most cases. Go ahead, your point. That was actually my question I was going to ask you, is where in the spectrum from conservative to aggressive would you identify uh, commodities trading? I think you answered that already on the aggressive side. Uh, let me you agree? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, 
There are a couple other ways that people do participate in the commodities market in addition to the index funds. There is a whole range of, of things called managed futures, where essentially, and I'll use this in a metaphoric sense, not an actual legal sense, that you're buying a fund of commodity commodities that are and and buying the trader as well. So that managed futures, in essence, you have anywhere from one to fifteen or sixteen different firms that trade commodities and you are buying, a sense, in essence, their profits uh, in a managed futures program. And the strategy is... You're gambling on the gambler. Exactly. Um, yeah. And even those, the logic in most modern portfolio theories for holding commodities is that traditionally, and this is actually changing a lot as we go to a more global economy, that they tended to behave without any uh, alignment with the stock and bond market. They were non-correlated asset, so that if you had a small percentage in your diversified account, that the bond stocks could go up, bonds could go down, but managed futures would behave differently, and so added a high degree of stability to your portfolio. In fact, of matter, when stocks are crashing, there's less purchase of commodities, and in general, commodities do go down and do go up, and their correlation with the market is a lot higher than. Uh, it had been in the past, particularly in this global economy. But at this point, Ronaldo, actually, we've hit our first hour. Okay, just, I'm just going to confess one thing before we end, and that is I go in and out of commodities personally, and I do it usually through index funds. And I just want people to know I say that not because uh, – I, I want people to know that if you are prepared to do the kind of work that I do to track the economy, or if you're just willing to come to these phone calls and read what the, economy, what the academy publishes, you can make money. I do on a commodities. It's just not for the, if you're, if you're lazy, or if you're not willing to put in the effort, I should say, that commodities are not for you. They're, they're, it takes considerable uh, attention to the marketplace in order to be able to safely do it. So that's all I want to say. So it's not it's in the blanket prohibition, because I do do it, but it's more in the nature of something you do with great care and only with a lot of information at your disposal. And I should make a similar disclaimer in that in Many of my client accounts, we do use a small percentage, and I truly mean a small percentage, of future indexes as part of a well-diversified balanced portfolio because, again, there is some discrepancy between how they behave enough that if you're doing an active rebalancing that you can use them to stabilize an account. But, again, very small percentages and only when you've already covered, as we talked about last week, your short and uh, midterm um, cash flow. And, Howard, I want to add one more thing for those listening for next week. I'm, I'd like to touch on master limited partnerships because it's the way I've been making money for a number of months now. And it's pretty safe, actually. It's fairly reasonably safe. And it's a very, very good return. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I want to just uh, tantalize people with the fact that there's a safe way to invest in a particular kind of commodity using what are called master limited partnerships, which produce really significantly good income. And I want to talk about that next time so you'll know how to do that, too, and see returns of at least 9% on your money, which wouldn't be a bad thing. Okay. And with that, Renal, let's have a little wrap-up here. This has been a wide-ranging conversation, a little bit more scouted than some of other talks. But I think the common theme here is one that expresses a high degree of frustration with the political process uh, as it impacts on economics and also our individual finances. Do you want to kind of sum up with that as our, our theme? Or do you want to add something else to that? No, I think I'll just – I just think that we, because we've gone past the hour, I'll just end real quickly by saying I believe um, the current president is one of the most 
brilliant people, probably the smartest president we've ever had. I think he's a great scholar and a student. I think he's done an enormous amount of good, both in the agencies, with the exception of interior and energy, where I think he's done a very poor job. But in most of the agencies, uh, he's including environmental protection. I think he's done a really great job. Uh, I think he's done a job, a phenomenal job avoiding the recession. He's done a phenomenal job with what he had to do in private industry and is now restoring that private industry. There wouldn't be a General Motors today if he hadn't done the job he did. And I want to give Steve Ratner the real credit for that because a business guy was the guy he tapped to do it. But when you look at all of these things he has done, it is clear to me that the time has come for bold leadership, and that is what he has shied from. He needs to take that now. We, we're running out of time. And, and I said at the beginning of this call, and I'm not going to bring it to a close by going back to it, there's one thing in my economic prognostication I overestimated, and I'm now concerned. And that is I overestimated the intelligence and the ability to create results that the president would have. I didn't overestimate his intelligence. His intelligence is there. I overestimated what someone as bright as he could do, and, it's, and I'm now concerned that if he doesn't grab the bull by the horns, the economy will continue to suffer as a result. It is suffering now because he's not being strong enough in his leadership capacity. And I call on the president to be more of a driving influence. I call on the Democratic Senate to quit playing around and get serious. We have a planet at stake here, and you owe it to us to do your job better. And if it costs you an election, so be it. Do the right thing. Worry about the voting box later. And I call on the Republican Party, particularly everybody who's even who is anything uh, who, who who's not in the in, in the Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, Sarah Palin Tea Party contingency, anybody in the traditional Republican Party. I call upon you to start exercising some moral leadership in your own world and start voting for things that are good for the American public and stop this monolithic logjam that attempts to embarrass the president at the cost of our common safety. That's it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you all very much for listening. Again, if you have ideas, suggestions, or thoughts about what you'd like to hear on one of these shows, please email us at the Academy. We'd love to hear your ideas. And also, once we do post the new topic, we do welcome your email questions in advance, and we're happy to ask those and uh, present those in our next session. And I believe that is the second week of August. We're up again, and look forward to hearing and seeing you all again then. Thanks again, and good day. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.